Hello friends and welcome to another episode of the Bibliophile Adventure. I am feeling in a somber mood tonight and it's not because I'm not feeling happy, it's just because I am planning to tell you about a book which is a serious book. It's uh, not a fun book, but it is a book that might help you to enjoy life more fully. And this book is called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. It's by Robert M. Pirzig. It was published in 1974. And it's by a guy who was a scientist, and then a teacher, and then a writer. So much for his career. And I guess the book itself can be pretty much summed up in a couple of sentences too. And I'll tell you the plot, because I don't think it's going to spoil anything for you. So in the story of this book, let me just say it's called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And as far as I remember, and having read, having listened to the book again as an, an audiobook, and having listened, having read a ton of interviews and uh, reviews of this book in the past couple of weeks to get ready for this episode, I don't think that this book tells you almost anything about Zen, <laughs> about Buddhism at all. I don't think, and even the book itself says, that it doesn't teach you anything about motorcycle maintenance. And if you started reading the book thinking, okay, I heard this is a really cool book, and it's going to help me to um, dig deep into the secrets of life, you might be a bit disappointed because what it does contain is a long, long uh, description of basically a really, really short uh, story, which is kind of like the framing device for the book. A dad and his son go on a motorbike ride and they take, they go with two friends and... Uh, you know, these are quite nice friends, and they have a fun time. They drive around America through the through the Midwest, I guess, through the plains, Dakota, Montana, Idaho, Oregon, California. So they see some really great places. They see some wonderful sights. And I guess the action of the book, there's almost no action in this book. The dad is basically telling a story to his son, and most of it happens in his head. So if you come to this book expecting a lot of action, now I warned you, most of the story actually happens between you and the writer, really. He's um, he's telling a story in a special way called a Chautauqua or a Chautauqua or something like that. You can look this up. And um, this is an American tradition. This was a type of traveling show, I want to say about a century ago or end of last century. Hey, Okay, two centuries ago. And what they used to do, this was before radio even. They used to take a big tent and set it up outside of town. And it wasn't a traveling show in the first days. It was actually just uh, done in each town. And they used to have a show. So they would tell the stories of someone's life. And they would, they would also explain a little bit why that person was the way they were. And what they did with their life. And why they thought the way they thought. And at a certain point, this person would come on stage, you know, a guy dressed as Abraham Lincoln or something. Someone would come on stage and pretend to be that person. You could ask them questions and they would try and answer those questions, but in character. So it was a kind of a pretty amazing idea, actually. It was a pretty cool um, idea. 
adults used to turn up, kids used to turn up. It was a family entertainment. And uh, like many things, it became commercialized. It became like standardized and people took it on the road and it became more like a kind of a freak show, I guess, like an entertainment, just uh, mostly for fun. And it, uh, of course, it went the way of the dodo when radio and then television came along. And maybe we're seeing a bit of a comeback because I guess you, or at least um, I am listening to this podcast. <laughs> so um, it's going to be somewhat of the same experience. So this guy is riding around with his son. And straight away, you get this weird feeling about the relationship of the father and the son. And after a while, you realize that that's really the meaning of the story. It's really about this guy and his kid. Um, there's the relationship with the couple that these two are riding around with. You never really understand why um, it's just the dad and his kid. It's not. There's no mom involved. But you slowly kind of get an idea why it might be. I don't think it's fully explained. Um, the premise for the whole Odyssey, which again is, is totally in this guy's head, okay? Nothing really happens except that they go through a bunch of towns. Um, they fix their bikes, they drink some beer, they uh, eat, sleep, wash themselves, entertain themselves. They go on vacation. That's all that happens. The premise is that this guy is a bit of a nerd and he's good at fixing his bike and his friends aren't. And they're always amazed. They always wonder why. One person is good at fixing bikes and stuff like that, nerd stuff, <laughs> and why they're not... Or actually, the couple themselves don't even really kind of... This doesn't even figure on their radar. They don't see it as strange. They just see it as kind of the way things are. Some people are good at computers and uh, machines and systems and stuff. Other people are good at other things. And this is the starting point for this long, almost a meditation on this question of wait, where did this go wrong? Why, why isn't a motorbike seen as something beautiful and fascinating, which I think it is, as much as an apple tree or a sunset? Why isn't it something as fascinating or motivating as following your favorite sports team or something like this, right? Why don't people get into uh, nerd stuff? <laughs> Why don't people get into science and philosophy the same way as they get into uh, painting or drawing or uh, music or whatever? Okay, you could make a hundred examples, but the point is, at least in the mind of the author, and that's that's also this guy who's on holiday with his kid. You never hear his name, by the way, but it's clearly it's Pierzig. It's the it's the writer. Okay, it's the narrator, and he's telling you his life. There's a bunch of interviews you can go and dig out with, with Robert M. Pierzig and find out about his life, and it's pretty much what happened in the book. I don't think it follows the details at all, but in the outline of what happens, it's exactly him. It's really him writing, and he kind of makes it a bit more poetic for you. So you can follow him in this kind of chataka that he's having here. He's uh, He's telling a bit of a a fanciful story to get you to um, follow what happened to him or where he went, actually. That's the, that's the important point. You could get really bogged down very quickly in this book. He talks about science and technology versus this romantic ideal of the world is very beautiful 
and being about interpersonal relations, let's say romantic view of the world, and this kind of split, it already sounds very philosophical and the kind of stuff that you write essays about in school, in college, and then you forget about it. And I read many interviews, uh, many um, reviews, sorry, maybe the interviews too, they're maybe just as bad. They all take this kind of line, like saying that this book is very important and it's teaching you something about life and we better pay attention. I mean, that might be true, but I don't, the more I think about it and the more I, now I've read it again, the more I, I read other people's view of it. I don't think it's about that. I read one very inter interesting interview is from August 12th, uh, 1996. David Nito is a psychologist and he read this book back then. It's a story of a man and his son on a motorcycle journey from the US Midwest to the Pacific coast. That's the first level. As you get into his meditations, he's a very taciturn fellow. He talks to his kids and his kid and he talks to his friends, but mostly he's talking to you. And he talks about how he descended into madness. That's the second level. Um, he pursued these ideas about what it means to be rational and how to teach uh, rationality to other people. And I think that's where the relationship of the father and son, that's where that comes in, really. How do you pass on this um, technique or this awareness of rationality to someone else? How can you raise your kids? The third point is his coming to terms with recovery. Because what we're looking at in the book is really a new character that emerges after this descent into madness. So this psychologist who reviewed the book, I was really amazed. He, he looks at the story from a psychological point of view and he says, well, the main point actually is that this guy was really, really angry. At a point later in the, in the book, very, very close to the end, you realize that the narrator has given himself this name, Phaedrus or Phaedrus. Phaedrus is the Greek word for a wolf, and it's also a character from one of the dialogues of Plato. So it's Socrates talking to a guy called Phaedrus. And Phaedrus is famous, at least in the book, uh, because Socrates says to him, what is good and what is not? Do we need anyone to tell us these things? In other words, do we need someone to teach us uh, what's good, what's true, what's worthwhile, right? Like, um, and on the flip side, is it possible really to help somebody to find what is good? Or like, um, is it possible to set somebody up for life and say, look, this is good, this is bad. Do, do what I'm telling you, you'll be fine. And Socrates says, no, it's not possible, actually. Uh, you don't need anybody to tell you that. Phaedrus in this story has this name of the wolf and it's chosen because he's meant to be hostile. He's meant to be like an outsider. He's aggressive. And um, I don't know. I looked up that uh, dialogue. It's amazing what you can find on the internet right now. Um, <laughs> you should you should look that up. It's very uh, beautiful. If you're a writer at all, it, it's really uh, very strong stuff for you. I don't know. I didn't get the sense that Phaedrus is meant to be very hostile in that dialogue. But in the story, in the book uh, Zen, we are looking at a really hostile guy. It's really true. Um, the narrator says of himself, it's what he says about his old self. Hostility is really his element. It really is. Um, and then the reviewer, the reviewer contrasts it and says, but Phaedrus did nothing constructive with anger. That's dangerous. 
And in the story, indeed, um, Phaedrus basically spirals down and down and down into this kind of self-destructive madness until he's actually harmful to himself and he's harmful to others. He's seen as dangerous, at least, like physically dangerous. Um, even though all he's really done is um, had a lot of debates. <laughs> so the story of uh, Pierzig's life is that he uh, he came from a pretty, I guess, uh, nice um, middle-class family, academic family. Uh, his dad was a lawyer, as far as I can make out. And uh, he went to university. He studied science, a very hard kind of science, biochemistry, actually, uh, where you really have to be, yeah, you have to be pretty brainy. I mean, that's that's tough. It's very tough. Uh, it's mathematical. And you have to memorize a ton of things. Nowadays, we would do it with computers, a lot of it. Um, and maybe you wouldn't have a lot of the frustration that Pierzik had. I guess he had. Um, and at a certain point with his science, he got very, very um, depressed or like uncertain as to why he was doing it. And the fact that, hey, look, science doesn't doesn't give you answers. It gives you questions. And the more you dig into it, the more questions you get. And uh, he got to the point where he realized, hey, actually, you know, you can investigate anything. And it has like a million aspects. And he was wondering why do we... Uh, pick the aspect that we do pick. Why do we do the work we do? And I guess for a lot of scientists, the answer is because I get funded or um, I don't know, that's what interested me 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and that's what I'm going to stick with or it could be a hundred things. I guess I love this because I also studied science. I was in a mathematical science um, because I was good at it. And at a certain stage in my in my degree, pretty early, um, I too had this question, why am I doing this? What on earth is this for? And even just carrying on with the studies felt a bit like this huge jump into the beyond, into, um, I won't call it a leap of faith. I would call it like making peace with the idea that stuff doesn't make sense. I mean, it was as harsh as that. Pierzig himself just dropped out of his studies, basically, and he became a teacher, a lecturer in writing, as far as I can make out, some kind of... I mean, in, in, in the USA, they teach uh, writing as a skill. In in Britain, where I'm from, that's pretty unknown. Uh, maybe shouldn't be. But um, he was teaching writing anyway. And there's a classical kind of concept of writing in America. Whether that's good or bad, I am not placed to say, but it's pretty fascinating to me anyway. So he was teaching within this kind of semi-classical way of teaching kids to write like the ancient romans okay whether that's whether that's possible i don't know um ancient greeks ancient romans uh they had a very formal way of approaching things and maybe thing maybe writing classes have toned down a bit by now since the 60s but back then it was pretty um was pretty heavy stuff and in a sense this was the worst thing he could have done because he started digging into uh, the philosophy which is behind this, and this is a really amazing part of the book. If you can, if you can work your way, fight your way through it, because Pierzik digs deep into this classical uh, way of looking at the world, analyzing stuff, deconstructing facts and arguments, and then reconstructing uh, persuasive ways of, of telling people about the world. And he says that before we split up the world into these two sides of 
analytical thinking, uh, mechanical thinking, and then on the other hand, like what is persuasive to people, what is beautiful, what is attractive. Philosophy and even teaching, education, did not make this distinction. Instead, there was kind of a tradition that was common to every culture, not only the Greeks, but also um, Buddhists. I mean, there weren't maybe even Buddhists by that time. I don't remember the timeline exactly. But maybe even before that, there was this Hindu tradition that's thousands of years old. I mean, every every tradition basically has folk tales and poetry. And he says this was actually part of this ancient tradition of teaching. And also uh, the mystical side of things, which again, you kind of find in almost every every culture, every history. I want to read um, a couple of sentences from some of my favorite pre-Socratic philosophers. There's one of them called Heraclitus, who is known as the famous... Um, He's not famous, but if you if you heard of him, you know that he kind of invented atoms. He thought that matter consisted of atoms. This was way, way before uh, Galileo or any of these guys did experiments. But that's not the most interesting thing for me. He talks about the way that people... And I think I'm a lot like him. There's, there's a philosopher for every kind of um, personality type, right? They shouldn't... They shouldn't personally type you with a with a test. They should just say, read these philosophers and pick the one you like. He says, um, even people who are asleep do their work and <laughs> and keep the world going round. I'm translating from the German here, but I think it's pretty accurate. Don't act and speak as if you're asleep. So he's quite hard on these people who are asleep. He thinks that most people are basically asleep. They're not using their brains. Even though he says... At a certain point here, look, uh, thinking is a common uh, ability. Everyone can think. So why why are people not thinking? You need to follow common sense. But even though common sense isn't isn't special, most people live as if they had they had a special power of thinking. So most people live as if they're like the only person alive. Basically, <laughs> that's what he's saying. Because later he says, look, for those who are awake. There's only one common world. There's only one world that we share. There's one world, okay, for those people who are awake. But the sleeper turns in, turns inward to their own special world. So it's saying that and the person who's awake is the one who's listening, the one who's got their eyes open and they're looking around at this world. Because if there's only one world, there's only one reality, then everything becomes interesting, right? And another saying of his, apparently, I mean, these are very old. These are super old writings. Uh, we're talking like five, 600 BC. Nobody knows for sure what these guys were like because they were all kind of uh, put out of business by Plato and his friends. Okay, wisdom is not to listen to my voice, he says, but uh, to listen to reason, which tells us that all is one. There's only one reality. And a bit later, he even says, I investigate myself. So I really thought that um, Martin might like this episode because he's really saying, and even in the book, uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, we read that quote uh, from the Hindu scriptures, I think. You are that Brahman is Atman, that type of thing, right? But the interesting thing is that Phaedrus doesn't know what to do with this information, right? He, he, he's gone on this journey and it's not just, it's not just him reading a book. 
he's been actually practicing, he's been experimenting on his students and getting them to write about all kinds of dumb stuff with the aim of showing them uh, that they do know what is good and bad and that if they're just allowed a bit of freedom, they will produce fantastic writing, they will produce beautiful, convincing arguments or they will turn themselves away like the sleepers in the allegory. They might turn themselves away of their own free will and say, look, this is all dumb. Um, <laughs> and, and it is kind of dumb because they're at school. They're meant to be learning specific things to pass a test. And so he causes a lot of kind of unsettled uh, feelings. And eventually, of course, he uh, quits the school. Uh, he quits everything. He kind of just drops out. Back in the 60s, that was just not an option in the early 60s. Uh, people thought he was crazy. He was dangerous to himself and others, so they used the kind of clumsy tools that they had. The poor guy had this uh, electroconvulsive therapy, so um, which is wrong, but um, yeah, it's, it's a tragic, it's a really tragic tale. But I think it's a tale um, that we need to read again and again, because I had uh, completely misunderstood the book the first time I read it. I took away all this mystical stuff from it and it totally changed my life and it totally kind of set me off on all these different directions. But I actually missed almost everything that was in there. <laughs> There's so much in there. You can't, um, you can't summarize it. It's, it. it's not an instruction manual. It's a journey that you have to go on and you have to see the responses to everything that happened in this uh, guy's life. There's a moment in the book, and I'll read it out just because it's it's funny, and it's it's true, and it's the most, maybe the closest part to the life we live now. Listen to this. The cars seem to be moving at a steady maximum speed for in-town driving, as though they want to get somewhere. As though that's what's here right now. As though what's here right now is just something to get through. The drivers seem to be thinking about where they want to be rather than where they are. I know what it is. We've arrived in the West Coast. We're all strangers again. The funeral procession. The one everyone's in. This hyped up, fuck you, super modern, ego style of life that thinks it owns this country. We've been out of it for so long I'd forgotten all about it. We get into the stream of traffic going south. And I can feel the hyped-up danger close in. <laughs> I see in the mirror some bastard is tailgating me and won't pass. I don't like this at all. <laughs> you, so you, you feel like the, uh, the rider is like observing himself. And um, all of these reactions to this world we live in. I gotta say, I'm reading this book backwards because there's a sequel. It's called um, Lila or Leela. Uh, and you should probably go read that too. And then go back and read the first one. Because in the second book, he talks about dynamic quality and static quality. So what is good? Well, it's quality. What, it, what makes things the way they are? That's what's good. And this is just a restatement of all of these philosophical traditions. Like you've got Taoism. That's the one I dug into. Chinese tradition, uh, which came before Buddhism, actually. And um, has a lot in common, I think, <laughs> with Chinese Buddhism, I guess. And it talks about the way that can be named is not the real way. And those who speak don't know, and those who know don't speak. So in other words, you can't define this stuff 
quality things. You can't define them. You've got to go and see them. You've got to go and experience them. And that's what this first book is about. The second one is more about like, okay, so having opened yourself up to going and experiencing what is good and learning to kind of like live with it, just letting yourself be surprised, I guess, by things uh, all the time, not just like a one-off thing, but just like all the time. How do you kind of go back into the world and deal with stuff? And this is what this um, second book tells you is static quality and there's dynamic quality. It's probably easier to explain the dynamic stuff, right? Because you can think of a an amazing uh, discovery in science or some kind of beautiful poem or painting or uh, eh, whatever you like. So like some fantastic uh, athlete even could be anything, right? Like, I don't particularly like football. I hate watching sports of all kinds. Um, I'm happy to play, though. But there's some uh, sports people that I could just watch all day because you can see that they're having fun and you can see there's something really special going on there. Okay, so uh, for for Pirzig, this would be the dynamic quality. There's something new is happening um, and you can't kind of, like, put it in a box. You just got to watch it happen. And... The other, the flip side of that is once it's happened and once everybody's had this reaction to it and you've understood what it is, the thing is people want to put it in a box and put it on the shelf and keep it forever. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that per se. It's just that when we get mixed up and we think that that's what it's all about, then we get ourselves into this trap of thinking, hey, um, I don't need the dynamic stuff anymore. I'm going to be just fine where I am. Um, hey, I've been to school. I've done this. I've done that. I got this degree. I got this uh, experience. You know, I'm you know I'm the real deal. And the next day, something new comes along, and you have to think, wait a minute, this doesn't fit in my picture at all. And what do you what do you do? That's the that's the dynamic quality. And Phaedrus Phaedrus in the story in the in the ghost story. Because that's what it is. It's like a ghost story about the man that he used to be. And also about this ghost of reason. The ghost of quality that he's chasing through the world. It's mostly the Western world, by the way. Because uh, Pirzig, he, a bit like myself, um, he spent some time in the East. Um, and even just being there, being in Asian countries, you totally get a different vibe than you get in uh, European countries or like european influenced countries there's a whole just different vibe about these places and even though uh phaedrus Pirzig, he rejects a lot of what he hears like um i told you this was a bit of a downer okay <laughs> this book is not a cheerful book he goes and hears a lecturer tell him that everything's an illusion and phaedrus says oh okay so even uh dropping the atomic bomb i mean on japan was that an illusion and the lecturer tells him yes, and uh, Phaedrus just gets up and walks out of there and never comes back. He's Pirzig is much closer, I think, to more like a Native American view of the world, if anything, um, than to uh, an Eastern view of the world. He's he's although of course there's some there's some a lot of common ground, right? But um, he's basically a very positive guy. And I think that's what comes across in the book. He's got all this anger. He has this huge anger at society, um, at himself, for being unable to help 
his students and unable to help himself. And, and, you know, he wants to change the world. You know, he's like a, he's like a hippie before there were hippies and he's alone and he doesn't know what to do with this. So he turns this anger on himself and he becomes really psychotic. And this was the message for me. I mean, like having been through depression and stuff like that, my counselor told me, Hey, a lot of this is to do with anger. And the more you just realize that you're angry and the more you just accept that you're angry and you think to yourself, Hey, I'm really angry. <laughs> it even that just helps so much. And so in this, in this story, he's, he's coming to terms with this anger and what helps him in the end is actually his kid. The, the son is called Chris and looking back on the book now, um, I see that actually it's all about Chris. It's all about how he responds to his dad. And, uh, basically Chris is the one that saves him. You know, Chris is like this, um, this anchor for him. He's always been believing in his dad and just loving his dad and just refuses to accept what happens to his dad when they take him to the hospital and refuses to accept that his dad's gone away. And after all this kind of terrible things that happen, after the book was written, I mean, the, the son of the author actually died. Some years later, after the book was written, his, his dad had become kind of a celebrity, a minor celebrity, because uh, the book sold millions of copies. Suddenly, everybody wanted to come and interview him. And then I guess it quieted down again. And then some years after that, his son died. And this, this part of the book is, is not, it's not in the story, but it's in the afterword. And then the, the writer says something very striking about the, the child that he's lost as well. And I think you should go read it for yourself. Um, I'm not going to explain that part, but the message of the story is, is a very hopeful one. I would say in the end, they had another child. He wrote another book. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> So few people will have read that book. Um, it's kind of like, you know, first issue of a comic comes out and like a million people read it. And then second issue comes out and a couple thousand people read it, whatever. I think it's like that with this book and the second book. Um, but it did kind of make a, a quiet splash in the world. There's like a, a few websites where people follow up these ideas. I don't think of it as being ideas. Um, I think of the point of this book as being a journey that we need to follow the author on. If you want, if you find something useful there, I would, I find the philosophy parts in a sense, pretty boring, but he manages to bring them to life in a way that's very unexpected because he doesn't, he doesn't do the usual philosophy stuff of um, arguing what's right and what's wrong and analyzing stuff. He kind of brings the characters to life, which I guess is the point of the Chautauqua, right? The Chataka. Chataka. He um, he brings in a lot of drama, and like I said, even though nothing really nothing really happens in the story, <laughs> he has a bunch of arguments. Uh, you don't even see them; they're kind of off screen. And he has a lot of arguments with himself, but he manages to bring in these characters uh, and make it seem like you might want to follow him. Not not in terms of please don't go and. Um, <laughs> ride a motorbike or uh, do chemistry or um, read some old philosophy because of this. But I guess the book is asking us to open our eyes a bit more and to learn to live with things the way that they are. And maybe, maybe also look for the Chris in our life that's, that appreciates who we are, even when we maybe don't see it ourselves. Um, 
Because in the end, you know, he finds who he is through Chris. He doesn't find it. He doesn't. He doesn't succeed in his search, and I think that's kind of important too. He never, he never succeeds. But what he does do is he he finds somebody who loves him so much that he actually drags him out of that pit, and they go on to do. Well, I mean, pretty much the only thing that happens in the book is they keep on riding their bikes and they take off their helmets. Pretty dangerous as well, by the way. Don't do that. <laughs> but that's pretty much all that happens. And he discovers this quality is there waiting for him in his life, even though it's something that he can't kind of pin down. He can't touch it. He can't, he can't convince other people. He can't even convince himself to go and look for this quality in his life. Um, that he knows is there and he's understood must be there. But the quality in his life comes on kind of knocking at his door and and uh, and like dragging him out of that uh, death spiral that he's on. <laughs> and in the process, pro- producing this book and this um, these words that have kind of rippled out and touched so many people like me. And I, I guess it's my dad's book that I read the first time. So I guess my dad somehow... Um, yeah, and maybe you too. So I hope it's been, um, a little more uplifting than I was thinking. It might be, (laughs) if I get a hold of the second book again, I might do a a little episode on that. But hey, look, uh, Michael from Texas, you wanted us to mention a book that really changed our lives. And this would be one of them for myself. I'd really love to hear your own take on this. So... Until next time, this is Michael from Germany saying good night. Hasta la vista.